Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Potter's Vineyard with uh, Bill and Sandy Sanchez. It's July 27th, 2021. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you. First and biggest question to get us started is why wine? <clears throat> well, why wine right now? We think that gives people a chance to slow down, enjoy the moment, enjoy life. And that's what we're trying to do here. Um, remind people that we all work so hard and race through life, but it's great to enjoy it and slow it down and smell the bouquet. So let's talk a little bit about life before wine for both of you. Tell me, let's start with Bill, let's start with you. Uh, tell me about uh, kind of where you were born and where you grew up and, and early life. Interesting, yeah. I uh, was born in San Diego, but moved pretty quickly to Albuquerque. And my dad, uh, was in the army. Um, he was in World War II. He was in Korea. He was gone a, a, a bit when I was a young kid, uh, but he gathered us back together as a family, seven of us kids. And um, I think he was in television and then he got into public affairs. Mm-hmm. So um, he was working as a civil servant there and all the way up to 1970, when I was about 11, we moved here to Portland, uh, Cedar Hills area, and he became the chief public affairs officer for the uh, Corps of Engineers and working with the dams. And we, he had an, an, a job opportunity in San Antonio and in Portland. Well, Portland was in May, and we were all surprised, thinking, you know, why would we go up here when we're used to that climate, but obviously coming up in May and seeing the beautiful scenery and the countryside. I remember uh, Joni Mitchell was playing Paved Paradise, put up a parking lot, you know, um, on Highway 26, and it was just beautiful, the commute to downtown Portland from there for him. And so, yeah, we were little Indians, it looked like, running around with, you know, shirts off and very tan, and it washed off pretty quickly. Uh, my mother was full Irish, so we were half Irish, um, and uh, Oregon had got into us, and most of us stayed. And uh, so, yeah, that's where I, I grew up, and then middle school, high school, and been a, you know, a native since then. How about you, Sandy? I am a native Oregonian, uh, born in Beaverton, and, you know, my parents, uh, they were, um, my dad was born here, my mom was born in Idaho, and um, I'm the second of four kids, and just, uh, you know, my dad, um, you know, worked in the area, and uh, my grandparents and my family all mostly lives around here, so, um, you know, kind of a short, sweet tale here, you know. She'll tell more. Yeah, we'll, we'll tell more heritage. about that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about kind of life after high school. That's kind of where things usually begin for people. So, Bill, we'll start with you again. Uh, tell me about life after high school. Yeah, I uh, honestly told my dad I wanted to be a potter. I wanted to go to Saturday Market 
and uh, he quickly said, well, why don't you take some English and math and science along the way? And, uh, he's, and I wanted to put a kiln in, and he agreed to wire the basement for the kiln if I was willing to go to school, and so I did. And he, he allowed me to, so I had a wheel and a kiln, and uh, I still had that bug, but I enjoyed school, finally figured out that I liked uh, animals, and pursued lots of different paths towards, towards uh, pre-veterinary medicine, but then found animal nutrition. And so that's where I pursued a lot of schooling. So a couple degrees at Oregon State and then a PhD in uh, animal nutrition at University of Florida. So that was uh, kind of right after school, a long, a long spell of pursuit of that. And amazingly, I was able to carry a wheel with me most places and uh, travel and go to different places and still work with clay. Yeah, so you know high school in uh, Beaverton and then I met Bill when I was actually a senior in high school and he's a couple years older than me but uh, he actually knew my sister and I knew his brother before I even met him and you know just through friends and we met through mutual friends at a party and just started going out and uh, um, got married pretty young. Uh, yeah. She was 21, I was 23, and uh, that's when I started my master's. So she put me through school down there at Oregon State. Um, that's right. Did a little yeah. college, and then we had kids like five years after we were married, and kind of the pursuit of you know, you know, raising kids and. Uh, moved away for a while when Bill got his PhD, moved to Florida. Uh, our son was born in Florida. Our daughter was born here. We took her away to Florida when she was six months old. My parents were really sad that we took the grandchild away, but they came to visit and we had a good life there. Um, moved to Idaho after five years um, and lived there for five years. Moved back to Portland area in about 97. And uh, then, you know, we used to, you know, we well, always had drank wine drank a little a bit lot here of wine. and there. Um, but not yeah, good wine. I remember uh, getting really? through grad school with her Italian cooking, the spaghetti, I, still my favorite. And we had, I had the hearty burgundy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, but, you know, loved the red wine and the, the Italian influence with her family. Um, enjoying wine and the Sunday mm -hmm. dinners. For me personally, that's right. what I remember. Right, right. My grandpa made a little bit of wine in the basement and I, you know, I wish I remembered more about it, but um, they would just go down and just bring up some wine and we just didn't think anything of it. Sunday dinners at my grandparents' house, so. And uh, then Bill one day said, I'm gonna just learn how to make wine. Yeah, <laughs> so I was a professor at the University of Idaho and you know, pursuing all kinds of things, a lot of fermentation in the, in the animal nutrition world. But uh, I joined a company uh, that was making yeast culture for animal nutrition, Diamond V, and, and uh, I said, you know, I'm gonna learn about Saccharomyces on my own, you know, with my own, and I loved wine, and I didn't like my brother-in-law's beer, I remember as a young kid. So I, I thought, let's try wine, and that was 2004. And it was the same year I joined the company. And I just really 
you know, just immerse myself into it. And it's just amazing pursuit of that, that Saccharomyces, mm -hmm. amazing yeast. Um, and so a little bit of amateur wine. We, we did a kit, of course. Um, it turned out okay. And then actually we had a reunion, a family reunion. I made bottles of wine for everybody that attended. That was fun right. for the family reunion. Again, from a kit. I think it was a Pinot Gris. I think so. Um, but then I finally got my hands on some fruit. I think it was 05 or 06. We're still trying to remember. For sure, I did it in 06 in Pinot Noir. And uh, we went to uh, a neighbor's, our daughter's friend's grandparents had a vineyard. And so we picked um, and we're just amazed. Actually, I think that was 2005 because people were taking buckets of grapes home at the end. He had a big uh, pig roast. And uh, I said, what are they doing? Um, well, they're taking their grapes home. And I said, well, how do I do that? Well, you got to sign up and next year you can get some. Right, so, right. So the next year we got some in 2006, you know, our, what is it, about 120 pounds to do a carboy of Pinot Noir. And so that's how it started with, uh, you know, legitimate making of wine with your own fruit versus a kit. So you have the, you have the scientific background and you have the kind of, you have the yeast add, added to that. Yeah. Right. Tell me about the, the process of learning it at that point. What, what, what did you not know yet? What was the, what was that process like? Oh, it was just the fascination. So I immersed myself, absorbed everything I could find and read. Um, we, we, we joined the amateur wine club um, a little later, but had won a couple awards, you know, a couple ribbons at the state fair kind of thing. But what I didn't know was the commercial scale. Uh, at, along the same time, we, we started going out wine tasting. As, as the kids got a little bit older, we would go, and I think our 20th anniversary, or 10th anniversary probably, maybe 15th anyway, we went down obviously to California, was one of our first ones. And I remember sitting in a parking lot, or sitting in a restaurant, in a parking lot where people would race in and they'd open their door and they'd go, <sighs> and I could just see them coming in from San Francisco, just racing through life and finally to a point where they could slow down and enjoy that moment. And I was stunned. I said, that's what it is. That's mm -hmm. what wine tasting is. It, it, it makes you reflect and, and you know, cause you're, it's, you don't just knock it back. I mean, you take a little bit of time to smell the wine, taste the mm -hmm. beginning, middle, finish, um, and with the food, and it, it just slows your, your senses down that you focus, mm -hmm. and it, it became uh, just one of the most fascinating things that I ever experienced. So uh, coming back to Oregon, I don't think we did much wine tasting up in Idaho. No, uh, I think we you found would, uh, a few places because we always yeah. loved wine, and every time we'd come here, we would go get wine. But yeah, we started wine tasting and doing that pursuit, mm -hmm. along with making our own wine. So I was one of those people that I would ask all the questions at the wineries, and when we found the winemakers, that was the most fascinating time for us. So full circle back here, that's what we love to do. We love to share. If if people want to know, we don't overwhelm them if they want to have a time with themselves but if they a lot of people are curious 
And then a lot of people have made wine or they've grown grapes, so they want to know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really was one of those people. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was in that era before we jumped in <laughs> to this thing full time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Down in California, had some business trips and we, you know, kind of learned to like wine. We were like, wow, this wine's really good and met with some other people like in the wine industry and, you know, yeah, uh, some events. And we were like, wow, we like this, you know. Yeah, a good so. friend of mine was making wine in California and he was in the, the Sacramento Wine Club, Sacramento County. And he was winning, you know, best to show and golds, you know, within the however they did that. And he mentored me a little bit because we were both PhD nutritionists in the industry, technical scientists, you know. And he was really good. His wine was really good. And um, mine was not. <laughs> uh, as an amateur, it was very challenging, especially Pinot Noir. Um, I think Cabernet Sauvignon, which I started with, uh, some of the first fruit after the Oregon ones, that was easier to make, honestly. Um, and it tasted good like it's supposed to. Pinot Noir, sometimes, occasionally we would get it, but many times we would not get what was. And I, I noticed that also in the industry, there was a lot of variation in the quality of Pinot Noir um, back in the 90s um, and tasting some of those older vintages. But when you got a good one, it was amazing. Um, and you, so that pursuit of mm -hmm. um, that essence of super high quality Pinot Noir. So he helped me a bit. Um, and then again, I, I pursued my own knowledge in Oregon. You know, most of the training is California centric. Um, obviously they're making 90% of the wine in the country. And, We've got the world-renowned scientists, but I noticed uh, Washington and then Oregon State, um, you know, had some focus and we're starting to bring on some um, more Northwest-focused faculty to help us with, you know, the fruit. I'm talking the industry, you know, managing the fruit here and then making the wine here. You raised an interesting point there. You talked about, you know, Pinot Noir and the challenges that it presented you compared to Cab and perhaps some other varieties. As you were pursuing your education, as you were asking questions, what did you learn about that? What, why, why was it so challenging and what did you kind of figure out as you went along to make Pinot Noir the way you wanted to make it? Yeah, what I found out, it was super secret. You know, I mean, I, maybe, maybe I didn't know enough to ask, um, but the... Uh, just scratching your head why so i don't think i learned until i became a professional um a lot more and obviously a more, much more focus on pinot noir so all i knew was that certain vintages were generally better um, and so we started studying vintages and we loved certain ones because uh, there were more and so we were buying those um, and then yeah we didn't under, i didn't understand other than that the year, um, how some, you know, years were better. Mm -hmm. Now I think looking back, I, I understand a bit more, mm -hmm. but uh, at the time I didn't. And so it was like that mystery and, and that awe of, wow, this is amazing. And then obviously when you tasted some, um, mm -hmm. you were just really intrigued, like, 
is it is it winemaking or is it just the vintage? Right, and then and you kept pretty much making Cab as the amateur. You know, didn't really. I think you just did one or two. Little yeah, small I mean, batches I, of Pinot, I think I tried. But it was mainly Cab. Yeah, I, when I started growing as an amateur, I was getting more and more Cabernet Sauvignon because, you know, when you get a bigger volume, it's better. And the Pinot wasn't that good, so um, all the way up through 2011. We were slightly, slowly growing, and we finally got to a 50-gallon tank. <laughs> and Sandy's like, what are we going to do with all this wine? Yeah. You know, Obviously, when you have a carboy, five gallons, that's two and a half cases. So 50-gallon, there's 25 cases, you know, or 20-some cases. Uh -huh. but, and that's a lot for, you know, I mean, I, my friends enjoyed it, but not every vintage as well. Like, oh, Bill, this is great, but yeah, you know. So, um, <laughs> but some of it was really good. Some of it was really good. I mean, we mm -hmm. had, um, yeah, a few of those vintages where people were just saying, man, this is some, the best wine I've ever had. And I'm right. like, wow, really, can that be? Can I make wine? And I remember sipping it myself one evening. This is so good. And I'd have another glass and just, yeah. what, what, did, what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> And it was really uh, more our preference to drink more Cab than Pinot back then. So that's why he made A the lot cab. of the variation was and frustrating with Pinot Noir. So yeah, we loved great Pinots, but they were, they were few and far between. I mean, there were, honestly, I, that's how I viewed it. Um, and maybe I didn't wait long enough, I don't know. You know how some of them take a lot of years to really mm -hmm. soften. But yeah, we preferred, you know, consistent, good quality wine and Cabernet. Sauvignon, and it was right. close. Washington fruit, we we li we liked that. Um, you know, going north, I think, and I'd I'd been in that area. You know, traveling from Idaho here, we would travel through that area, where we eventually found our mm -hmm. our vineyards. Right, met this grower, and we're still getting the fruit from the same grower that we got the amateur fruit from. Yeah, that we, he sold you know, the vineyard, but um, they kept us, and we've been slowly getting some of the older, older vines um, there now, but yeah. Right, exactly. So you mentioned the, the kind of the slow amateur growth. So tell me about the, 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 the next step. What's, what makes you decide to take that, to take the leap? Well, the, um, so again, all the way up to 2011, and that year we went to Italy, um, Sandy turned 50 and we, you know, we said, let's, let's go on a trip. And obviously her, both her grandparents are from there. So going back to when we were dating, um, going to the Sunday dinners, the grandparents and seeing her dad go come up the stairs with the carafe. And I'd say, where, where'd you get that from the basement? You fool. You know, I mean, Dario, his, her dad. And then I understood talking to some of the aunts and uncles that all the Italians would get their fruit together and they would make the wine and then they'd compare and contrast and it was so fun and that's what they did in Italy. We went to Italy and went to the different communities and went wine tasting and we saw that and saw that culture um, and you know put it together for me that we could actually do that here. So we started looking for property. We lived in Tigard, raised our kids there and finally you know they're done and we, heading out of, out of college and so we said well it's our time to move out bring the kilns out to the country because um, we were also growing our pottery business as well 
So um, seeing that and tasting fruit over there and seeing the vineyards. So we thought we were gonna plant vines. We were looking for a place like this that people could come to versus hauling our pottery to show after show um, where we could have an event place that people could come and visit and then add the wine to that was a kind of a vague dream, but we, we knew that was something we wanted to do. And then... Yeah, uh, exactly. We were looking at different properties for a couple years on and off. And uh, we weren't really sure exactly what we were looking for. We thought, oh, plant, get an acre, plant some vines, hobby farm. They'll be ready to go by the time we retire. We can just kind of hobby farm. That was kind of the vision. Um, and our realtor was taking us to kind of all different kinds of properties because we weren't sure exactly what we wanted or what kind of house we wanted. I just knew I didn't want to live too far out uh, because I wanted to be able to still get in to, you know, see my family or get to my job or, you know, I didn't want to be that far away. Um, so, so, but when we found past, this, past Dundee was out of bounds. Yeah. You know? and even, well, no, no. That even was, Dundee was a little yeah, bit that far. Yeah, was a little bit too far. So and we I were looking like, around. If, Twenty minutes. She's a school Newburgh, teacher. Sherwood. You in know, Tigard. So yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. But um, then you know, and in 2012, you know, prices were dropping. We kind of got in at a really great time, and our realtor showed us this, and we're like, whoa. Wow, this is like, it just felt right when well, we, we drove in here. We pull in, and I, I said to her, I said, I thought we were going to plant vines. She goes, well, this dropped in your price range. She said, whoa, really? And the vineyard was here. This vineyard was planted in 2001, and that was 2012. And we walked in that door right there behind you and met Laura Volkman. And she had developed the fibromyalgia, the burning muscle pain, um, and she'd come through the last two vintages, 2010 and 2011, which are a couple of the coldest vintages, especially 11, where they're harvesting deep into November. And so she put the vineyard up for sale um, that year, and uh, I think the house was so small, we were looking to downsize. That's the only reason why I think it was still here when we looked. But we had this great feeling about this space and her and the vineyard, and and we were just kind of stunned with, are we, are we ready for this? So I asked Sandy, I said, are you ready for this? And she goes, I'm not afraid of hard work. <laughs> and I remember that to this day. I and didn't know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> we we moved in on September 15th and harvested on October 9th, and that was our first vintage 10 years ago. We're in our 10th vintage this year. And we were both working full time, um, doing some pottery, um, still working, you know, the organizations like the Oregon Potters Association. We were big into empty bowls. Um, and I was obviously a busy professional with lots of committees and boards mm -hmm. and things. Um, and Sandy was managing the house when I was traveling. And so we were crazy. But we knew if we didn't do it then, we would never do it. And so, and it was small enough, our accountant said, you know, you can always sell the fruit. If it doesn't work out, let's say you look at the right. bad side, fine, let's do it. And man, it was, uh, it was a wake up call on, especially the harvest and the fermentation. And I was taking all my vacation time every year around then, 
and also sometimes you couldn't avoid a trip. And so juggling that, Sandy would sometimes go to the winery at six o'clock in the morning before school to do the punch downs. And you know, when you're in that fermentation, things can happen, so you have mm -hmm. to be there. So we had, um, yeah, we had some help, but yeah, that's how, that's, that's what happened to it us. It was crazy times, I'll tell you. <laughs> but you, we just took it a day at a time and we were able to, you know, make it through, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was manageable. We felt like, oh, this is five acres, three acres of grapes. I mean, we were looking at properties with 20 acres. I was like, we don't, what are we gonna do with that? <laughs> and uh, so this was just kind of the right fit. And, and uh, we're small enough that we could do it all ourselves. And I definitely wanted to be the winemaker. Um, so that's my pursuit. Then I did jump into the UC Davis program right away, the International Winemaker Certificate online. Every Sunday after closing the tasting room, I would go in and do my case studies and submit them by midnight. You know, they were due. And all week they would have forum questions and then we'd have a lecture like Tuesday night. And so I was doing that, absorbing everything and learning um, the technical aspects as well as every week we, we negotiate with Laura. She helped us to see the vision that we need her help for a whole year, mm -hmm. every step of the winemaking, grape growing process. And so we met with her once a week through the whole vintage. Mm -hmm. and. That was the 2013 vintage, which was a crazy one to start with. Um, obviously, we did the 12. She did most of the vineyard work in 12, and then we harvested with her, did most of the winemaking with her. But the, the vintage of, 12, of 13 was the one that um, everything was great up until harvest, as you, as you remember, yeah. the 2013 vintage. So. Um, yeah, you go through those uh, gut checks. And we also thank, thank, I'll mention Stoller, thank Stoller to have that law challenge that we could actually open up to the public. Laura had just the special event winery permits on the six weekends a year um, that she was open, that was it. Like a lot of them back then only open for Memorial Day, Thanksgiving, kind of mm -hmm. those weekends. So we couldn't function. Um, we, we started with a little bit of distribution, but that was something we weren't prepared to go out and just do it ourselves. even though you have representation. And it was, it was almost like groveling where you're asking people to take your wine. And uh, it was brutal. So, and we're too small to compete on economy of scale. Mm -hmm. So we pursued the conditional use permit to allow us to be open every weekend. Yeah. All the red tape, all the hoops we had to jump through for that because it was kind of, we had to just learn, you know, ask a lot of questions and because uh, we were like, we got all this wine, we, we need to be open more. <laughs> and we wanted people to come enjoy this place and the pottery, that was just kind of the vision. Yeah. And so... About 2015, we were able to open. 2015, we started um, more significantly. More. I think 14, we started, we did as many as we could. We, we actually applied for the 18 weekends, and they said, oh, no, you can't do that unless you have 20 acres. Um, and that was Yamhill County's ruling. And, and she said, well, why don't you just do the conditional use permit? So, okay, yeah, I mean, whatever we can do to get 
And so we applied and obviously the neighbors had to approve us. Mm -hmm. And fortunately they did. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody complained vehemently, especially our close neighbors, our, our good friends um, about, you know, uh, upsetting their tranquil life out here in the country. Mm -hmm. And we had a, you know, a good access here. Uh, the fire, you know, chief had to come in and approve, and then Yamhill County had to approve our space and um, all of those things. Um, so we uh, were able to do that, and then we poured everything we could into making this a better space, like the Italian floor, um, staining that, and insulating the building and, and making it comfortable and adding mm -hmm. some heat in here. This was just a, a tin barn, you know, a, uh, it was this, you know, the tractor shed that um, was mm -hmm. converted. Laura had done a lot with the wine room and the tasting room, bathroom and things, but we added our touch with lights. You know, you need good lighting for pottery mm -hmm. and art. And uh, then we started working on the grounds more. Um, mm -hmm. You know, gravel can be really taken over by weeds. And um, so we had to, really work on that exactly. and add more parking and mm -hmm. um, make it comfortable. We, we didn't want big crowds, but we, we needed enough people to be able to come in. And this is a pretty big space to um, allow enough people to come in and, and enjoy wine. That's right. Yeah. And people say, oh, well, what do you do in your spare time? <laughs> oh, what spare time? <laughs> you know, we're always, you know, doing things around here. You know, when you own a home, you always have things you've got to do. There's always projects. Well, we have, you know, kind of double projects around here, but we enjoy doing them. Um, you know, you take pride in doing it yourself, but then we hire out things if we need to, and um, that's yeah. just always how we've been. And, you know, it's hard work, but it's good work. Yeah. It makes us feel good. So is that a summer retirement project? Exactly. Sure. <laughs> exactly. Just a little hobby. Just a little hobby card. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tell me about. You mentioned this space in particular. Tell me about the idea of mixing the art gallery and the wine, and, and, and tell me about putting that together, and about the response you got from people who, who found you. Yeah. Initially, yeah. we didn't have our permit um, to sell that first holiday weekend, Thanksgiving, which was a big one. So we worked with Laura, and we brought in this artist. Uh, Patrick No with the Vineyard Worker, uh, and he's done the Mediterranean designs, and he's got the Cinque Terre kind of Mediterranean clay, and people saw that work and said, "That's your, that's your label, that's mm -hmm. your logo," and we said, "Wow, it really is." And we had filled the place because we're potters, and we know we're part of the Oregon Potters Association. We know a lot of great potters right here, and there's so many wonderful artists right here. So we filled it and it just transformed the, the space from that. It's a great barn feeling, but to add the art um, really mm -hmm. beautifies it. And again, it allows you to slow down a little bit. You're enjoying wine and you're stopping to enjoy some art. So that became the permanent fixture where we actually knew that was our goal because we named it the Potter's Vineyard and Clay Art Gallery right from the beginning. And that's our LLC. So, but boy, when we, when she uh, trades them out or when we close like for the winter, um, it's stale. It's without the art in here, mm -hmm. it's a nice building, but it's not as refreshing and soul filling, you know? Mm -hmm. So mixing it was a 
from the beginning, that was our goal. Um, we right. thought we were unique, by the way. And then obviously we met Andrew Beckham and we, we didn't have the first idea right. with, and this, other with this clay. Rooms. Yeah. you know other art and their artists so we've kind of learned that along the way but I do my one friend she said now are you sure you want to do wine and art don't you think the art's gonna you want to focus on the wine and and she just wasn't sure if it was gonna meld and uh, later she said you guys were right on because uh, she said you they complement each other so much and uh, she thought hmm how is that gonna work yeah but it and works great. I think uh, I always tell people, if you don't make good wine, you can't do any of this other stuff. Mm -hmm. You have to make good wine first and foremost, otherwise it's gonna be a novelty and people aren't gonna come back. But if you, if you start with the fundamental of good wine, then you can add your unique touch. And, and that unique touch um, a, you know, was able to be, be done well because of the, of the quality wine that we were able to make. Mm -hmm. And then, then again, you go to the connection of the vineyard and it's all about farming. We all know, you hear it, wine is made in the vineyard, mm -hmm. it truly is. And so in addition to that, then you get the clay, the soil connection to the clay art. And it's a beautiful, and that's kind of more our colors too. We have a lot of iron rich glazes along with this wonderful iron rich soil that we have here in this North Willamette Valley. So Sandy, I know your role, uh, part of your role is, is the gallery and it's right. it fresh. So tell me about that, about finding, finding people you want to showcase and, and how, it, how it works and, and how, how much art do people buy here? Is it, is it, a, is it a consistent thing? Uh, it is a consistent thing. Uh, people are buying more art than ever, I'll tell you. And we know lots of artists through Oregon Potters Association. Plus I try to get you know other types of art. We've had photography, glass, um, you know, paintings, just, and people that we know, or people ask me, hey, uh, I'm an artist, and, and I always just say, hey, send me, you know, send me some pictures, but some of it doesn't really fit in. I mean, I have to, I mean, I'm the judge, and I have to like it. It might not be exactly what I would buy for my own home, but it has to kind of fit in with our, you know, scheme here. Um, so, but pretty much I don't turn too many people away. And then a lot of our artists are, you know, club members too. You know, they're like, oh, I'm an artist. And um, it just all kind of works itself out. And I try to rotate it every three to four months. So it's kind of fresh for when people come out, you know, two, three, four times a year, they want to come out and pick up their wine and just ever rotate, it's just, you know, it's a, you've got to have it. It's, it's, it's really fun to unpack the pottery and, you know, display. And I think I've gotten better over the years, you know. So that's kind of my thing. Cause I'm really not a potter. I do a little pottery, maybe some glazing with Bill, little hand building, but um, he's way better at it. And I'm better at, you know, displaying, pricing. That was always kind of my thing, you know, packing up. I'm um, getting it ready for display, so. Curating. Yeah, curator. the curator. I'm kind of behind the scenes person, <laughs> you know. And then with the tasting room, you know, I keep, you know, all the tasting appointments. I keep, I do all the wine club. Um, lots of, you know, lots of behind the scenes things. 
Well, I'll talk about how that how that part has changed. You mentioned kind of that you were you were the questioning types yourselves when you went to, and met winemakers, and you want to share that. So I'm curious uh, as you've grown and people have, have found you, tell me about the, the how the, how your customers have changed and and how many people are, are now approaching you and wanting to know more about making wine or, or, or about art, uh, that for that matter. How, how much of that kind of mentoring are you doing now? Well, we're always willing to share, um, maybe too much sometimes we get told, but um, <laughs> you, you know, it's just because just you know how to make wine doesn't mean you can start your own. So we're happy to help people along the way. Um, in that aspect, but it, more so, they're just curious. They want to know, wow, how did this grape go into that bottle of wine? You know, mm -hmm. they want to, they're just fascinated. And I think we all are about our food and, and what we mm -hmm. drink. And it's so amazing to be able to go out and look at the vines and think about that whole process of how they grow up and ripen and become grapes that go into wine. So I think they're curious and we're happy to share and I loved it when I could get that kind of firsthand knowledge, mm -hmm. not just because I was going to become a winemaker, but just to, to understand more. And, you know, so we are one of the great things that we offer. We're super small. So we're always here or our assistant winemaker, Art and Gretchen. Art's my assistant winemaker and Gretchen, his wife, are always here. And they... They know the wine, they know the vineyard, so they can answer questions that people have, if that's what people want. And we find more of our customers are learners like that. They're, they're into what the product is and how it comes to be. And so that's kind of the, the customer that pursues us. Right. And wants kind of the small place, not crowded. And it's been just word of mouth. I mean, it's just grown over the years. Um, because we don't do a lot of, you know, advertising, but it's been through, you know, family, friends, then uh, their friends, and you know, it, people know each other. Um, yeah. It's like a family around here, really. And we've met some great friends, you know, just through them coming through our doors. They've become friends, and we get together with them outside of tasting room hours, you know. <laughs> so it's really fun. Good socialization. And then, you know, the connection to the clear. Not everybody wants to know that part, um, but some people do. And so early on, I thought about doing more, but it's a long process. So you get your hands on some wet clay. Well, I say, are you ready to come back tomorrow? Uh, it's going to dry, and you got to trim it. Um, and then you got to come back next week to glaze it. And you got to come yeah. back. So it's four trips minimum. So that, that didn't work because we're not a studio, you know, classroom. But I, I did recently, last year we started our first Raku event where Raku is an instant firing process um, that I make the piece, we biscuit for them, harden it, and they can glaze it and take it home that day. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes a feasible pursuit, kind of like the, the wine and art I mean, uh, painting um, programs that, that we host here as well, where people can come and paint something, enjoy some wine, and take home their painting mm -hmm. that day. Same thing with the clay, but um, I brought in a Raku kiln last year, and so we just finished our third one, I think, um, this mm -hmm. year, 
and it's really fun. You get a small group of people, they glaze their work, and then we stop and focus. Again, that connection with the clay and the soil and the vineyard mm -hmm. and the, the sitting and that memory of being together, enjoying a, a pursuit. Right, right. Um, so there is that connection that's happening. Um, yeah. Bill has all sorts of ideas. <laughs> Let me tell you. I'm the I'm the vision He's idea, and Sandy ideas. has to execute them, and so she has to slow me down on. That's right, I do. On these I crazy do. ideas, but that one and I I'm think. I'm like, what? What are you thinking? So but. she's she's uh, accepting that one, and not everyone. You know, you got to try a few things. You know, you're not going to succeed on yeah. everything, and that's okay. I mean, we're going to fail um, as we pursue different little niches and things. Um, we, I'm, I love animals, but we're not going to bring, you know, animals because we're too small. And uh, Sandy would be out there in the morning having to feed them, you know. Yeah. I mean, as as I'm no, doing no. at the winery or something. So, um, <laughs> sadly, we can't add that part that I would love to. But um, we can add the art and the clay and. Um, Let's talk about the wine a little bit and how it has evolved as as you have evolved as a business and as a, and as a winemaker. Tell me about um, kind of the first first wines you had commercially for sale and, and how you've grown since then. Yeah, the uh, we were very fortunate. The fruit is so amazing here, and I give a lot of credit to Laura and her planting and selection of the clones and the tight spacing and the narrow rows. So we're in this laurel wood soil um, that's very rich and vigorous. So the super tight planting um, with the non-irrigation, the dry farming has allowed the fruit to be just super high quality. So our first vintage, we got 91 points on through Wine Spectator. And so we knew something was, was going on with the Pinot Noir. And that's all we did our first year. Um, again, great recommendation from Laura, just focus on the Pinot. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the second year, we brought the Cabernet in. And I was so proud that I was me. So we got the Barrel Select Award from Oregon Wine Press on our first vintage of Cabernet. Um, and so we knew we had some high quality wine. And then we're so small that we didn't submit our wines. Sometimes we would and wouldn't get it in any reviews. Um, again, we couldn't afford to publish, um, to, to advertise in a lot of the magazines. So. Um, but slowly we submitted lots of different events and we were getting awards and we were so excited to get a bronze medal, you know, at the SIP and then get a silver and now we're getting golds and we got our first double gold this year and 95 point wine. So we're pretty excited about that Pinot Noir 2018 uh, yeah. barrel select wine that we just got the, the high score on. Uh, obviously that, I think that's meaningful. Some of the scores sometimes could be inflated and you, you know, you're happy. But the golds are, you know, near and dear, and not, and so it's so competitive, as you know. Really good quality wine around here, so we're excited about that. They have improved, um, just getting more consistent, um, and our, you know, our farming um, continues to be improved. The um, the vineyard was conventional after the 2011 brutal vintage, and so I was a scientist coming in, learned everything about, you know, taking care of the vines, you know, learning the spray program. And I realized I could not pronounce most of the things I was spraying on the vines. And, and I was willing to learn, but I, why am I doing this? And so we, 
we instantly joined the live. We got live certified. It went through the three-year process and Salmon Safe, uh, which is still conventional, but everything that you do has to be safe for salmon in the vineyard and everything is recorded and I learned so much about taking care of the land and I, I really that was a pursuit of mine to, to have a tractor and to be a farmer um, but the uh, I was still not happy um, two things I wanted to do number one as a nutritionist I'd retired um, into my career learning about immunology and I was so fascinated about the immune system and how that can help people and animals and so I thought the same thing with with the vines and I found out in the viticulture class and then reading the journals how um, there are things nutritionally you can do as well as biologicals that you can do in the vineyard to help improve the immune health of the plant and so that was a personal pursuit of mine and I chose to, to convert to organic along that process and I think, you know, you think about the soil microbes and the beneficial insects, how they're healthier, and so the plant is healthier. And um, so the wine can be better. That's my personal opinion. It's hard to prove, but um, I think the, the consensus is there in our industry. And so given, you know, you have good quality technical winemaking, with you care about sanitation, handcrafting, um, careful control of oxidation, but you also focus on the vineyard and the health of the vines, and they really are. I mean, you, here we are, almost August, and you see the beautiful green vineyard, all dry farmed, um, very healthy. Um, so I think that has helped to create wines of distinction and, and mm -hmm. quality. Yes, for sure. And then of course we brought the Chardonnay in in 13 or 14? Um, 14, I think. So Cabernet in 13, Chardonnay in 14. Those were our main um, varietals. We, we went back to the same area. Actually, we started at Salilo Vineyard with the Chardonnay. Laura had a, had a relationship, you know, no contracts existed, uh, but she had a relationship with Salilo Vineyard. We were able to get that fruit for three years, 14, oh, four years. Yeah, four years. 14, 15, 16, 17, and then they sold and kicked us out. Um, <laughs> and sadly, you know, as a small, um, you don't get to choose. That's the one thing about not having your own vineyard. But we had a relationship up in Rattlesnake Hills with our Cabernet vineyard, and they recommended another place near there for the Chardonnay, and this turned out to be um, our style of Chardonnay, the Winte clone. We love the rich, full malolactic, but beautiful mm -hmm. French oak spice, um, great acidity um, Chardonnay. And so we got our hands on that fruit and did the um, whole cluster press into barrel, fermented um, mm -hmm. into new French oak. About 50% new is what our style is. And again, with great acidity, you've got a beautiful balanced wine, which got just a little bit more richness that we prefer. And so mm -hmm. we started making that to complement the Pinot Noir. And right. I think that was before the big pursuit of Chardonnay here in Oregon. And we're an odd one that we have the Washington Wente clone versus the Dijon mm -hmm. stainless steel style. But um, 
But we love it. And, yeah, we love it. And, and I think our customers love it. People that like that love this. And I think even if they don't prefer, they're, they're saying, well, okay, so this is the traditional southern France, southern Burgundy style uh, Chardonnay. And they're, it's, it's wonderful if you have good acidity and a, and a soft touch of oak that, you know, the, the super tight rings, the old forest, little of those spiced notes that are wonderful versus, you know, a heavy vanilla or coconut or, you know, oaky type of over buttered, you know, kind of wine. Right, so right. Um, these are the citrus notes to complement. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we, um, I think they pair beautifully together. Again, you're taking people to France along the, when they're tasting the wine. Mm -hmm along with a little bit of a trip to Italy um, to go with some of this style of, of uh, bigger fruit. Um, mm -hmm. And then we brought the rosé in. We started doing rosé. Also in 14. 14. Um, and a friend of mine was saying, you need to make Sandy's rosé. So we, yeah, we made, that's right. and actually I was thinking of my daughter who had been helping us a lot. She wasn't ready for wine yet, but she liked you know, a little bit of sweetness. So our, our first vintage of rosé was probably too sweet, but she loved it, and uh, that was 14. And then we started dialing it back in 15, and people just raved over the rosé. And I think if you dedicate the Pinot Noir towards a rosé, not, not an afterthought, but if you start with a plan to make rosé, you can make incredible rosé uh, with a plan. So we did that starting in 15, and we slowly dialed it down, but it's basically been the same year after year. We pick it a little earlier than the regular Pinot Noir, and it comes in bright, crisp, refreshing, light, um, but it has that essence of Pinot Noir. The juice is amazing. We've typically gone with a little bit more skin contact, except last year, which we can talk about, but the, uh, the rosé has been a big compliment, again, in the summertime, all year, but, you know, obviously it's refreshing and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, thanks, honey. Keep, no, well, keep, I, yeah. She organizes all the wine, as you can tell. Yeah. Um, and then, so. of course, I wanted just to say that we, we started doing some shows in probably around in 16. Um, you know, we needed to, you know, advertise ourselves, get out and do some of these shows, the SIP and, you know, Newport. And uh, we finally got into the Astoria show two years ago, but, of course, they had to cancel it. Uh, so we're looking forward to doing that again someday. But that really helped us get a lot of new customers doing the SIP five, five years or so. And yeah. had so much fun with all these customers and people and meeting other winemakers and... Um, yeah, other wineries, which it's so hard to get out yeah. and taste the wine. So it was great to go to the shows. So the Portland... Wine and Seafood Festival, the SIP, the right, Astoria, Newport. So that's been really fun. And some other that. small ones, the Sherwood uh, Wine Festival, Art, Wine and Art. And then sometimes we can bring our art and wine together. Yeah. So it makes a unique. So a uh, little bit of that, but mostly here, the tasting room. Yeah. That's like our most focus, especially the last couple of years. So let's talk about 2020, since we're on the topic. Um, first, let's talk about the beginning of 2020, obviously, with, with COVID. So uh, obviously, direct-to-consumer business. Uh, tell me about sort of uh, initial reactions, both sort of personally and professionally, last March as things started to shut down. And what kind of pivots did you have to make to, to get through the year? 
Well, it's interesting yeah. if you go back to 2019, we had grown and we were getting legitimized um, as a serious winemaking company with mm -hmm. um, great wine and, and a beautiful space. So people were coming out and joining the wine club. And so we invested in 2020 and more grounds thinking it was gonna be a great year like everybody, I'm sure, um, and it hit us just, uh, we'd, we'd hired a uh, young man um, from Washington State University grad, viticulture enologist, to work in the vineyard, and we wanted to do more of it ourselves, as well as just having another person, and whenever we have help, we do it all, so that was a great opportunity for him to do everything for a small winery. Uh, but we had him full time, and when the shutdown came, and first obviously we were concerned about his health, we were concerned about our health, we were concerned. So um, we did all those things and the precautions and learned, and thankfully the industry got together and we all worked together to, to be um, smart and safe. But um, I had some friends, also organic vineyards and um, talk to them about helping or, or hiring him in addition to us carrying him full time. I didn't want to lay him off. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we didn't have to because I think it was at one point maybe seven vineyards that he was doing work with. It got a bit too much, but mainly big three main vineyards, four main vineyards that he was working with. And so that kept him full-time through COVID and we were so proud to have him as mm -hmm. a full-time employee all the way through August or through late July until he left back home to the East Coast. Right. But the, uh, yeah, so and but, Sandy's teaching um, and got word a couple weeks before spring break that they're going to shut down. Yeah, it's kind of part of it's still a blur, you know, now that you think back. But of course, we were closed. We stayed on the same schedule as like restaurants, bars. So we had to be closed for two months, uh, you know, March, April. And then we could reopen and just be, you know, we had to limit how many people indoors um, and, you know, just make all those precautions. But, it, you know, we don't really have we don't really have employees per se. You know, it's mostly us. Yeah, and so training and keeping our employees healthy was not that big Yeah, where I know that really was a challenge for larger places, but that didn't really affect us. And then we switched all to reservations. Before that, we were walk-ins, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. Um, but then we switched all to reservations, which we had the system in place, yeah. but we usually use it for like um, private in, appointments. In 2019, you know, we thought, let's do some private tastings a um, couple days a week. And so we bought this reservation software system and started using it, it was really good. Unfortunately, we had that so that on May 15th, we could be open. Right. Um, we, were, we were open the second day that it was allowed. May 14th, we got the word that we could be open. And I was playing with the software and I was showing Sandy and I was making a reservation, testing it. And all of a sudden this, this lady makes a reservation. I said, what? Somebody made a reservation that day and we were not open. Yeah. But she was on her way and I was telling her to give me a call and she goes, oh yeah, we're almost there. So we, it was a nice day. 
So they they were our first customers. Yeah, and outside. we weren't we weren't sure if we were going to be ready. So yeah, because again, it was just us. Um, we had the space, so we just did it. I mean, you just. I mean, obviously, we didn't want it. We wanted to wait and figure out. But no, we just did it. We yeah. And then the next day, open. May fifteenth, we were open by by appointment, and it slowly started to take off again. Um, being a super small one, we weren't able to pour a lot of energy into the online sales. We did some, but um, and the and the drive up thing was a little bit as well. But she was home from school. It was nice, but it was just eerie how we couldn't be open to taste wine. Mm -hmm. And restaurants, we felt so bad. Restaurants, wine tour companies, they were just devastated. So we couldn't complain. Um, and so after May 15th, then it just started to, and then the weather started allowing, but we first had to have um, indoor space that was socially distanced and then a few tents that had some rain protection where right. people could enjoy wine outside. Yeah, so it was definitely a whirlwind and you know club members coming driving up vineside pickup and uh, because you know we we had to kind of keep we had to keep making wine we were all we were still doing that that didn't stop yeah. and then of course the we're like oh it's stop. a club pickup we need to yeah. You know. Thankfully, our club members were so wonderful to continue to support us. Obviously, when they lost their jobs, they dropped the club. But those, those that still had a budget uh, to support were so wonderful to us to keep us going. Because without them, we would not have been able to, to make a go. And, and Right. Exactly. But, you know, we were able to stay open then, you know, the May and then uh, May, June, July through the summer. You know, but we just kept lots of space, you know, so people felt comfortable. Uh, that was our main goal, you know, wearing our mask, cleaning everything. But just uh, we only allow so many people per hour anyway. And we didn't want the crowds and, and people felt comfortable. Them. Yeah, they felt safe. Yeah, people were like, we really appreciate you having all this space for people. And if it was bad weather, you know, we had to really watch out on our grouping indoors. Um, but then in November, of course, they shut us down two weekends in November, the big holiday weekend and the weekend before. And then in December, we normally are just open the first three Saturdays in December, um, just kind of holiday shopping, and it's kind of winding down the season for us. But we were open the full weekends, the first three full weekends of December, because we hadn't been open that much. But we were forced to be outdoor tastings for that. So we had our tent out front. People were out here braving the weather, <laughs> uh, the wind, some rain. But they were out here tasting wine, picking up wine, buying art. And I mean, we just all were, you know, yeah, but having a good time. Good you know, people to, were uh, doing good. To live life and enjoy. And uh, again, appreciate this moment to get out briefly because everybody was obviously locked yeah. in. But we just kind of kept day at a time, figuring out, you know, a week at a time, what we could do, what we couldn't do. And then, of course, we closed down in January, February. We just were just not open, um, which was nice just to, we that's always to a good recharge for us. Do some barrel tasting and those things during that time of year. 
but uh, I think most people dial it down a little bit anyway. And if they wanted to come out, we, we could open our doors. We're pretty small and flexible, but in general, we close for those two months. Yep, and then we, you know, reopen in March and start all over again, you know, get ready for the season and And then if it. you talk about the harvest, um, you know, we'd, we'd built this rosé program and we'd started having fun with it where we'd invite our wine club and family to come out and pick. Um, number one, it was always, we don't know when, you know, they say, well, tell us when, we don't know. So you, if you want to, you know, we'll let you know a couple days. <laughs> so um, that couldn't happen with COVID. Um, so we had to figure out how to pick with a crew um, and not have wine club members, you know, especially close in on each other during right. COVID. So that was a big change. But then um, that was, uh, we were out here washing bins on that Labor Day. And, uh, you know, we knew about the high winds, so we were taking our tents down and things. And then Sandy comes out and she goes, there's a puff of smoke over there. And it was just bone dry, no burning, absolutely. And, and we're all, looking at that my son and i and sandy um and she's she's that's pretty serious and the, the puff grew bigger and bigger and you know we were busy thinking about harvest getting ready for it and then that um you know just devastated us with that smoke obviously it was the fresh smoke so nine miles away the shahala mountain fires were here plus all the other Sadly, Beachy right. Creek and All that came East over. County fires um, to build that smoke. Uh, we have pictures of, like everybody, yeah, just solid, you know, low visibility. Right. For about um, ten days, we were ten days thick smoke. Thick smoke. So, again, I'm a, I'm a learner. I was already somewhat familiar with some of the literature, you know, Australia, California. But like everybody else, I had to scramble immediately and figure out what are we going to do um, with this harvest. And um, I tried to taste, but we couldn't taste anything in the grapes. Um, but the knowledge, and thankfully Oregon State had done some work, and again, assembling the knowledge. And the industry was absolutely gracious with each other, sharing whatever mm -hmm. we could help us all get through it but the key thing that we did number one we we picked this this white Pinot Noir thinking it was going to be our rosé um, and we normally pick two weeks early so we picked that uh, middle of September um, during the smoke um, and it, with the smoke reduced photosynthesis as well so it also slowed down the ripening with the cooler weather too, and the high winds and a little bit of rain, but not, not the rain challenge. I mean, the the vintage looked beautiful. The 2020 fruit was so, and we like a little bit of variation in the berry size. We don't like a big yield, big full clusters because that makes richer wine that we like more skin to juice, and so it was it was it was not as ripe as the typical rosé. The berries were firmer. The one thing that we knew, um, give credit to some winemaker friends that, you know, we press it off immediately, no skin contact, because obviously that's where the 
skin smoke compounds right. were. And the berries were firm and we were able to get this beautiful white juice that had some amazing flavors. Um, and during the fermentation, you know, it, it moved along slowly, just like a regular rosé. And uh, eventually we figured out, well, that's, that's a white pinot. Um, I, we had our, in mind a, a white pinot, I think. Um, and then we picked a second picking. Um, it was more of an experimental pick, and that ended up being our rosé uh, because the berries were a little softer. And, and now with um, immediate press, we were able to get a little bit of color like we typically like in our right. rosé. So um, we made the lemonade out of the lemons of 2020. And at the same time, our lab, our young puppy was born during harvest, and we were able to get her right after we put the wine in the barrels. Um, and so she became the label, uh, the, the wine dog on the label, Tara's White Pinot. So that's her name, Tara, our little Labrador retriever. Well, not puppy. so little right now. Now she's 10 months. Yeah, now she's 10 months. But um, <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, you, you look at 2020 as just tough for everybody. Yeah. But for us, having that puppy come into our life and having a White Pinot, um, some wonderful rosé and all of us being safe. We didn't, the fires didn't come this way, so we were very fortunate. We did have the smoke. We did not make a Pinot Noir, a red Pinot Noir. Um, but we were, we were healthy and, and none of our, you know, none of our close friends or family um, had, had catastrophes from that. Like a lot of people, obviously south. Um, yeah. We, kn we knew some people down there, um, you know, Opal Creek area and in there. So we have to be thankful and, and obviously we were able to get past uh, the 2020 tough yeah. year. Yeah. So tell me about the, the kind of your initial impressions of, of the Oregon wine industry as, as you were getting into it. And, and the changes you've seen in it to now, what, what, what's different now than when you, when you started in the industry? Hmm, what do you think, Bill? Um, <laughs> you know, we're, we still consider ourselves just not knowing because we don't get out much. We're locked in pretty much every weekend. Yeah, um, we can't go wine tasting anymore. And we're no. meeting a few people as we go, so we're still just unknown and but I thought it was an amazing industry. Um, I'm, I love agriculture and I'm, I'm excited for the wine industry to be able to do this direct to consumer business where most of agriculture has to grow to be efficient or it's gonna leave our, our borders. Um, wine, on the other hand, the consumer can come to the farm and buy the fruit of its production, um, which is an amazing difference between a lot of our food that we consume and products from the farm. I think people still think we can do that. Maybe we can with other parts of agriculture, but this one we can, and that allows a small family farm like ours to exist and I think the Oregon wine industry knows that and is, is helpful. Um, I'm sad to see it also growing. Um, I think 
again, business is business, and there's attractions when a big company wants to buy a smaller one, and often that gets, so I always say there's three things. You can either grow, get bought out, or go out of business, you know, but we want to do the fourth option, which is stay small and continue to do it ourselves. And we we've, we've been able to do that for ten years or mm -hmm. nine years now. We're in our tenth vintage. Right, right. So I think the uniqueness of the wine, where people can come, and again, thankfully, the forefathers worked with the state to allow the consumer to come to the wine, come to the farm, um, which a lot of agriculture, that's that's a challenge. But we've built this business. I say we, the industry, has built this business to have accommodations where people can come to the farm mm -hmm. and buy the product from the family, from the farmers themselves. And it's a great attribute and give all the credit to the forefathers of the Oregon wine industry for mm -hmm. allowing us to be part of that. So what about as you look ahead then for the industry, especially coming out of the pandemic now, what, what will the next years look like and, and maybe what are you hoping for? and? Maybe what are you fearful of, if anything? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're just gonna, you know, keep going with the reservation system. Uh, we really like that. You know, coming out of the pandemic, people are like, oh, can we just come by? And we're like, well, we'll take walk-ins. But, you know, the weather's gonna change and uh, we only have so much inside space and we wanna make it still comfortable for people. Um, but we'll just keep striving away. And yeah, we're growing like, like a lot of the industry. Yeah. The, the tough thing about uh, too much growth, too fast growth, is yeah. the older vintages leave. So we're still pouring our 17s, for example. Um, the 18s are just so wonderful. We released them, but we pulled them back and holding them so that when you come, you can have an older vintage from a small winery. Right. That's, a, that's important. Also the crowds, like Sandy said, the, the old days where people would be crowded in here, you know, chatting right next to each other. And I think, number one, obviously COVID is fresh in our mind, but number two, people don't really love the super crowded space. Um, they don't mind it for big events and stuff, but I think they've found out that this, wow, lots of space, we can relax. There's no fear of anybody being too close or yeah. things like that. And, and I think we all enjoy that. So we want to continue to do that. Um, like Sandy said, we're going to keep the reservation. We're going to allow people. We're finding it, it's about 50-50 now. People, they don't know where they're going, so they want to just pull in. We allow them if we have the space. But right. if we don't, if, so, if you want to make sure, then make the reservation. Then you have the space to yourself. Um, so we think that's... Uh, good and that's where we're going so we're we're going to continue to grow to to meet the wine that we can produce we're always going to be under a thousand cases that's kind of where we feel comfortable on our winemaking which is so small people say is this a hobby no it's a it's a real business um it started as a hobby <laughs> probably but yeah we've grown in we have to pay the bills i mean we have to pay ourselves back all this investment that we put in all the years to be fair to our, ourselves and our family but um, we want to stay small enough we don't care about making a lot of money but we'd like to pay the bills and break even mm -hmm. and um, you know have this really fun relaxed 
slowing down, mm -hmm. treasuring the moment kind of experience. Right, right. And share it with other people. You know, we don't mind people bring their picnic, grab a bottle of wine. We're okay with that. And, uh, you know, especially in the nice weather where you could just be outside. When we had people inside for reservations, um, it's like, okay, we got more people coming. Sorry, you, got, you guys got to go. So, you know, <laughs> it was kind of tight a few times. And we don't like to do that. We want people to be able to hang out if they want to hang out longer than their hour, for sure. Um, but sometimes, you know, we would have to do that. But outdoors, have a good time. We've had people stay here, you know, all afternoon where they're like, we're not going anywhere else. We're just going to stay here and they can visit, have their wine tasting, get a bottle, bring their snacks and, we, you know. We want to be one of those places. We want to stay. Um, we continue to make it better um, for the grounds and things, but mm -hmm. that's, that's our, our vision and our, we don't want to, we don't want to be bought out. We don't want to be so big that we have to hire a, a big staff and, and lose that connection to the customer mm -hmm. ourselves. That's right. Although we have people that help us, like if we need to not be here, you know, we have people that can run the tasting room, but uh, we enjoy being here, but need a, you know, we have our time off when we need it. <laughs> I, guess that, I guess that's fair. Yeah, yeah, it's fair. And then, of course, at the end of the day, we're like, okay, we can put our feet up. But we're ready to do it again the next day. And it's just Friday, Saturday, Sunday mainly. So we can, we can do that and, you know, have our fun during the week and as we can. All, yeah. all that spare time. Yeah, all that spare time. <laughs> well, we are getting a couple beach trips coming up and that kind of thing just yeah. to get away. Because if we stay home, we work. <laughs> <laughs> Working at home before it was cool to work from home. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, one last question for you is one we like to ask, especially couples in the industry who have been working together for a while. So tell us, you're, you're, you're married, you have business together. What's the secret to keeping it, making it all successful? I'll tell you the yeah. secret is making sure you know who the boss is. <laughs> so Sandy is the boss. I report to her. He says and that it, all the time. It really is. I mean, she's the organizer. Um, She's a hardworking person, and I'm, I'm fortunate to have her. And I think uh, it's like a marriage. So if, if you're okay with your marriage and you can compromise and mm -hmm. give and take, um, I mm -hmm. think, and that's probably why so many uh, couples are successful in the wine business, because yeah. they're, they're married too, and they can um, work together and have their separate roles, but right. um, help each other. Um, yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> and that, you know, we both, you know, he's stronger at certain things and I'm stronger at others. And I, you know, and she tells me, you know, yeah. so she so, tells me how to make wine sometimes. I'm saying, honey, you, you could make the wine. Yeah. Here. Now it's, uh, that's okay. You got to laugh a lot. Um, so, uh, so it's like when he retired from, from his regular job, I was still working and I was like, people are like, yeah, you don't want to retire the same time. And I needed to kind of have my own getaway somewhere else. Sometimes I'd go to my other job just to kind of take a rest from this and just do something different. Um, so, uh, but then with the pandemic, I was home working because I, uh, I was a teacher and I was home doing all my Google 
teaching online. And I was like, whoa, we're here together all these months and we got along just fine. You know, he's like, oh yeah, make me breakfast. And I was like, well, I got things to do, you know? <laughs> so, uh, but we made it through that. And then yeah. I thought, you know, we can. And then, so I decided to retire. So I'm not going back to teaching in September. I am done um, because it was, I was gonna maybe work a few more years, but it was, the time was right. So. Gotta feel a little strange to not be thinking about back to school. At this point. I know, I'm, I'm really happy. It's still kind of summer break feeling right now, but uh, September, it's gonna be nice. And. Uh, um, well, congratulations, that's. that's thank you, I'm, I'm super excited and. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's all the questions that I have for the two of you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have? Yeah, I, I think uh, I was hoping we could cover the vineyard, and I think you did. So mm -hmm. a little bit of that connection. And so, yeah, we, we do it all from the vines to the wines to selling it to the public. And, and we're small enough that we can do that. And then also add our unique thing with the clay art. So Yeah, exactly. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for your time and for your great answers and great stories thank you. today. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.